0: Welcome back to another listener Q&A, where I answer questions submitted by our Ultra Supporters. Let's get right to it. JD Babes 33 says, Do you have any tips for trying to explain to people the ups and downs of depression, especially the downs that come out of seemingly nowhere? It becomes very frustrating when family members can't understand why you were fine yesterday, so what's happened since then to make you down? When you explain nothing has happened, and even I don't know why, they really struggle to understand. This is such a universal concern. It's a great question because depression is a really difficult thing for people to understand who haven't experienced it. And I, I think a lot of people who end up giving us like unhelpful or invalidating feedback, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt and assume they're not doing that on purpose. Because if you haven't experienced this, it really doesn't make sense. Even if you have experienced it, it still doesn't make sense, right? Um, but a couple things come to mind for me here. The first is, and, and even if you explain this really well, it's a hard thing to grasp, but, what I try to help people understand is that ultimately, your emotions are an internal experience, right? Your feelings are generated inside of you. And for something to happen outside of you, to create a feeling inside of you is actually a two step process. So what there's what's actually happening around you in your life. And then there's basically like a translation process that happens, right? So you've got this stuff. And then it creates some certain emotion inside of you. And then that's how you actually feel it and experience it. And so there's two things that can happen when we're depressed that can really disrupt that. So like, yeah, yesterday was fine. Today I'm not. My life is the same yesterday as it was today. That's the thing we're trying to explain, right? Two things can happen with depression that can affect how things feel from one day to the next. One is we can experience anhedonia. And if you deal with depression and there are people in your life who you're trying to explain depression to, they will not be able to understand it if they don't have at least an intellectual understanding of what anhedonia is. And the simplest way that you can explain it is it's a disruption of the reward pathway. So when something happens in your life that's supposed to feel good, it has to travel along your reward pathway before it actually creates a positive emotional experience. And and reward is really broad here. So if you accomplish something and get that feeling of like, hey, I did a good job, like I'm proud of myself, I, I achieved something. That's considered to be part of the reward pathway. If you do something that's meant to be joyful or exciting, experiencing joy and excitement is part of the reward pathway. So if your reward pathway is not working, basically the inputs don't create the emotion. They get blocked on the pathways. I've explained it as sort of like, imagine that you live in a big city and you have to take a bus route to get home and you have to take five different buses and bus number three has blown up and and that part of the route you cannot traverse anymore. Well, you can't get home then, right? And nothing else has changed except for that part of the route. So explaining Anhedonia to them or letting me explain Anhedonia to them through some of the videos I've made about the content or the topic, I should say, I think would be a good start. The other thing, this isn't exactly the question that you asked, but I also think it's it's adjacent enough that I wanna cover it too which is the other thing that, that happens with depression is people misunderstand the directionality of the relationship between our depression and our functioning. So what I mean by that is when you had that period of time where you were less depressed, not only did you probably seem happier and more joyful, you also probably did more. Like maybe you were going to the gym and staying socially engaged and going to work and going to class and then a depressive episode hits and you're doing much less of those things, maybe even none of them people see this difference. You were doing these things, now you're doing these things. And you felt good then and you feel bad now. And they think that the activities are the key to experiencing the emotion. And so they'll tell you, remember when you were working out and working full time and and going out with friends like once or twice a week, it sure seemed like you felt better then. I think if you could just do those things again, you would feel better again. And so they are correctly identifying a correlation or a relationship between your functioning and your mood, but they think that the functioning causes the mood when in fact it was the mood that was causing the functioning. You did those things because you felt better. You didn't feel better because you did those things. And so that's why a lot of times people just encourage us to like, just get back to work, just get back to doing all those things you were doing before. And it's not that they don't help or that they don't matter, It's that in many cases, some of the mood has to be there first for us to be able to do those things. And we often have to rebuild at a more fundamental level, you know, looking at like sleep hygiene and nutrition and stuff like that, rather than like, I need to get back to work and hang out with my friends again. That's maybe the second or third link in that chain. Hopefully that made sense to you. Second question comes from Emily Farley. She asks, how do you help someone who is clearly depressed, but just wants to sleep or not talk to anyone? I am going to break this one down into two parts, because what I would do as a professional is different than what you would probably do like i oh actually i don't know who you are maybe maybe emily maybe you are a therapist if you are i apologize you may be a professional um but I, i'm going to break it down into professional and and you know like personal support person and this is a very timely question because as some of you might know from the community page on um on this channel i had two interns join me this week and one of them in particular had, had two people in a row who just were really struggling with depression and didn't want to talk and so we we talked a bit about that As a professional, what I do in sessions like that is I tend to lean really heavily at first on psychoeducation, meaning I'm going to do most of the talking. You're not in a place where you can talk much. That's okay. I'll talk for a little bit. And the two things I would emphasize in the psychoeducation are helping this person understand their condition and helping this person understand the roadmap For getting out of what they're feeling in terms of understanding the condition itself i am a big fan of terminology and what i mean by that is i know a lot of people like don't like labels right because labels can feel stigmatizing and labels can feel judgmental and and if a if an incorrect label is applied that can be very damaging but a correctly applied label can be validating can be hopeful because what a label tells you is I am not the only person in the world going through this. And when you're in the midst of a deep depression, you can forget that. Or or like if this is someone who's like really baseline, like this is the first time they've dealt with this, they might not even, it might seem obvious to you, they may not even realize it's depression. They might not know what's happening. And if you can put a name to their feelings and say, hey, what you're going through is this, like anhedonia. Again, I know I just talked about it, but that's such a valuable term because that feeling of like, I can't access positivity, I can't access hope, I can't access joy it is so weird. It is so, if you've never felt it before, the first time it happens, you're like, What is happening? Like, I literally feel like something inside of me is broken. And like, there's just this brick wall that feelings used to be able to flow through. And if you've never heard anyone talk about that, it's such a strange and honestly terrifying feeling. And so, if you can help someone, Put a name to what they're feeling. That means you're not crazy. Other people feel this too. Probably many other people, if there's a name for it, right? Which also means there is treatment for it. It means this is a thing we have studied, we understand a good bit about, and we can help you figure out what to do with it. And that's where I get next into the roadmap. And that's where I'd really lay out like, here's what this is going to look like. We're going to do treatment in some certain stages. So, I like the biopsychosocial model, and I think of that as kind of like building a bridge between where you're at and where you want to be. So first, we're going to build the biological stability to help your brain work right, because depression really throws off your daily routines, your cognitive functioning, executive functioning, sleep hygiene, nutrition. We need to get your brain physically healthy, because your brain being more physically healthy is the key to the next bricks we're going to put in this bridge across this chasm, basically. The second is the psychological resources and so that's things like challenging cognitive distortions understanding and modifying belief systems mindfulness strategies emotion regulation techniques and then once we have your mind thinking a little bit more clearly seeing yourself in the world and other people a little bit more more accurately that third section of the bridge that's going to be social functioning so we're going to look at you know how are you interacting with people in your life do you know how to hold boundaries do you know how to be assertive do you know how and when to be vulnerable so Super quick answer, I know. But as a psychologist, that's where I'd start. As a just like a personal support person, people don't always want or need to talk when they're depressed. Like, I think that's kind of our go to. I mean, this kind of dovetails a little bit with the answer before, which is like, you know, when when you're feeling depressed, people try to get you to tell them what's wrong but that's not always an answerable question because sometimes nothing is wrong, or at least nothing is any more wrong than it was before when I felt differently. And so depression isn't always something we solve by talking. Um, And I think sometimes there's lots of reasons people struggle to talk when they're depressed, fatigue, anhedonia, psychomotor retardation, but sometimes it's just like, I would talk. I don't mind talking, but there's nothing to tell you. I just feel like crap and there's no like particular compelling reason for it. And so I think what happens or what I should say, what helps a lot of the time on the personal level is just doing stuff with people. I know that can be tough because when you're in a depressive episode, you don't necessarily feel like doing much and there can be a lot of resistance. And I don't necessarily mean like going out to places. It can be, but it could even be like, I'll come in your room and watch TV with you you know, and and maybe I'll comment on the show a little bit or I'll make lunch for both of us and I'll bring it to both of us and I'll eat my lunch while you hopefully eat. Sometimes it's hard to eat when you're depressed too. Um, but there isn't always like a lot of conversation that is helpful or needs to be had when someone's really depressed. Often they just want like companionship, camaraderie, just making them not feel alone, I think, can can make a tremendous difference. So that's where I start, you know, if it's someone in my personal life. Next question, my phone went to sleep, is from hmm, Kuvina Featherwise. If I botch that, I'm really sorry. Um, and they want to know, if you were going to choose just one thing to start doing every morning, what would it be? I seem to either make elaborate lists of how I'm going to start mornings with and then fail, or I do nothing to try to help. When I try to focus and work on just one, no matter what, I feel like I choose wrong. Um, So you're really accurately identifying a very common struggle in mental health and goal setting in general, which is sort of like all or nothing or black and white patterns. And it's easy to oscillate between like my, my, well, you're specifically talking about your morning routine, so I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'll just say that my morning routine is a mess, so I need to change all of it. And then we try to change all of it. And that's too overwhelming. It's too hard. It doesn't work. So it's like my morning routine is a mess and there's nothing I can do about it. (laughs) And we just kind of pendulum back and forth between those two extremes, both of which are ultimately unhelpful. So I think you've absolutely got the right idea, which is, yeah, like let's build that wall one brick at a time. Let's build that bridge one brick at a time. As far as where I'd start, thing is, I don't know where you're at already. So I'm going to give you what I would say are my first three steps and you pick the one that you, you, you might already have like kind of gotten one or two of these. So you pick the most fundamental one that you're not at. The very first place I would start, what I would consider to be the most foundational aspect of a morning routine is to the best of your ability, getting up at the same time seven days a week. If you get up at the same time every day, what that does, well, it does two really valuable things. It helps essentially reverse engineer your circadian rhythm so that you get tired at the right time to get the amount of sleep that you need and it helps you typically wake up from a lighter stage of sleep. So, especially if you're waking up to like an alarm clock or something like that, you don't always wake up at the same stage of sleep. If you if the times that you're asleep and going to bed are varying from one night to the next, some mornings you wake up in uh, from deep sleep. And what determines how you feel in like the first 15 to 30 minutes of your day, like right away before you have even really got going, is not how much sleep you got or how well you slept. It's what phase of sleep you woke up from. You can get eight hours of sleep a night. And if you wake up out of deep sleep, you are going to feel like crap for a bit. Those mornings are just rough and it's hard to get going. If you can stick with a consistent wake time seven days a week. Your circadian rhythm should essentially become customized to that time point, and you should always wake up out of light sleep, and that is those are the mornings that are relatively easy. If you want to figure out what time you should be waking up, pick your earliest morning, figure out what your earliest commitment is, whether that's work or school or whatever it is. Don't don't base it on like doctor's appointments and stuff like that um, unless you're doing something really consistently. But what's the earliest I have to get up normally and get up at that time seven days a week, even the days when you don't have to, even if you stayed up late the night before, maybe you're out at a concert or a sporting event or you're out with friends. That's okay. Have a life. Do that. Get less sleep than you need for one day rather than screwing up your sleep schedule for weeks. So priority number one is get consistent with your wake up time. If you've pretty much got that on point, priority number two is work on getting in the habit of eating breakfast. So many people struggle with breakfast. And I think a lot of times this branches off at of number one because if we are like sleeping into the last possible moment, because we don't have a well-established sleep schedule, It's hard to have time to eat breakfast or like you wake up and, you know, you're only awake for like 30 minutes before you leave the house. Well, it takes a little bit of time for your metabolism to get going because your metabolism slows down at night. So you need to have a decent buffer of time in the morning to get up so that you have time to eat breakfast and you have time to get hungry. Um, But breakfast is a game changer, like legitimately breakfast is a game changer. If you don't eat breakfast. You know, unless you eat dinner like right before bed, which is also not great, you're essentially running in low power mode for the first maybe third or so of your day. That's really unfortunate because a lot of times the first third part of our day is the hardest, right? Like that's getting up, getting ready, probably doing a lot of stuff before you get out the door. And often half of your workday occurs in the first third of your overall waking time. So I think the first third of your day is usually the most challenging for probably the average person. Um, so you really want to make sure that you have the fuel that you need for your brain to work right during that period of time. If you're on point with wake time and breakfast, the third thing I would do is I would try to get some type of movement in in the mornings, you know, whether that's going for a walk, whether that's more intensive cardio, whether that is like mobility work or stretching, weight training, Um, but just getting your body moving before your responsibilities really begin. It's so nice. Even me, I, I like exercise. I like physical activity. And even for me, like it, it still feels like a little bit of a burden, even though I enjoy it. And I really, really like getting it out of the way early. So I would focus on those three things in that order. If you get all three of those mastered, there's a lot of directions you could go from there. Next up, we have Bubble Girl, She says, hi, Dr. Scott, I am currently sitting in my therapist's waiting room and wondering whether you had any advice on how to get the most out of therapy. Like, is there any preparation you encourage from your patients? My mind is kind of all over the place and I never know what to prioritize because there's so much to work through. Any tips? Yes, I have like I could talk for hours on this, but I'm I'm not going to do that. I'm going to again, I feel like it's kind of the theme of the day. I'm going to break it down into two things. The first is it does really help if you come to therapy sessions with a sense of content, meaning you know what are the most pressing issues in your life that you wanna prioritize in therapy um, and make sure you work through them in order. There's sort of this, um, excuse me, sort of this trend that tends to happen in therapy where especially if you don't see your therapist all that often, we, we wanna start with lighter stuff and work our way to the heavier stuff. And a lot of times I'll, I'll see it where like the majority of the session is build up to what you really want to talk about. And by the time your comfort's built up enough to get there, there's like five minutes left of the session. I'll have people like walking out the door like, by the way, I'm getting divorced. And it's like, oh, we probably should have talked about that one like the whole time. Um, In order to, to kind of keep track of those things, I would recommend that you do some type of journaling. Now, that doesn't have to be I don't mean that literally like you keep a journal. You can, and that's great. I have people that even come to sessions with just like bullet point lists, for example. And I think that's super helpful in making sure the content stays on track and making sure that you're actually discussing the things that are most impactful to your mental health and your quality of life in a therapy session. The other thing that can be really helpful is making sure that you're clear with your therapist on what the tone of the session needs to be like, what you're looking for. Very broadly speaking, I would say there's three types of sessions that you can have. You can have a problem solving session. And that's when you're like, I am struggling with this thing and I don't know what to do about it. And I need you as the mental health professional to give me some actionable ideas what i can do to reduce or resolve this problem like i am struggling with insomnia help me with sleep hygiene i am struggling with assertiveness practice assertiveness with me you 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 want practical solutions to the problems you're facing that's a problem solving session second type of session that we have sometimes is a validation session and so that means like you're going through something that may not have an immediately apparent solution You maybe don't have a lot of people in your life who get this or like align with you or understand your perspective and how you feel. And you need another human being to be like, oh, man, like I get that. I probably would have felt that way, too. I know that this also relates to like that thing that happened seven years ago that I'm the only person who knows about. So, you know, I see how this all connects for you. I'm sorry you're going through that. I get it. That's that's kind of what a validation session is, right? You want to feel understood and heard and acknowledged and then the third type of session is a venting session so sometimes you don't really want your therapist to like say or do much other than just like be a human being witnessing you sometimes we just have a lot of stuff we just need to let out and we really don't need anything from the other person other than to be there witness it and hear it and in fact sometimes if that other person tries to do more than that sometimes it actually kind of like disrupts our flow and gets in the way of the session being what it needs to be um And there can be like, you know, obviously a lot of sessions are like hybrids of two or even all three of those things. But if you're able to clearly state, you know, like I'm struggling with insomnia, I need problem solving. I am struggling with conflict with my partner. I need validation. I am grieving and I just need to vent. If you can clearly say, you know, here's what I need from you, therapist, like that's actually incredibly helpful for us because we I always I'm always trying to figure out is this a problem are we problem solving? Are we validating? Are we venting? I'm always trying to figure it out. Excuse me. And sometimes I'll just straight up ask, and sometimes I'll guess. And sometimes I probably guess wrong. So if you know what you want from us, tell us. If you tell your therapist what you want and they have a weird reaction to it, or like, well, that's not what I want to do, or like, I don't think that's what you really need. And then you suck and you should fire them and get a new one because you're the expert on you, not them. Last question for today. Um, yeah, you told me I would struggle to pronounce your name and you are correct. I believe it is Rianne Duroc. That's my best attempt. Hopefully it wasn't embarrassingly bad. Hi, Dr. Scott, hope all is well. I really want to know if I can build up the good memories because all I can remember is the bad ones. Um, I'm gonna skip through some of this because it's kind of personal story. Um, I wanna know if I can get my memory back. I've missed out on so much of this. Uh, so much because of this, like the weights of my children when they were born. This is a complicated question, okay? And there are a lot of things that can impair recall of memory. Um, You didn't state this, but I I feel like it's maybe kind of implied in what you said. Trauma is a major variable in our ability to recall memories. So as you're working through trauma in particular, you may A, struggle to just like not have a lot of memories, and B, the memories you do have are going to tend to be trauma memories if you're doing trauma work, That being said, I want to review something we've talked about uh, earlier. We talked about it in the opposite direction. In some of my content on suicidal ideation, I've discussed mood congruent memory and how when you're in a really dark place, when you're like really depressed or really angry, you tend to recall other memories in which you were in a similar mood state because moods are sort of one of the tags. Like our memories almost have like hashtags, right? So all your memories have like these certain stimuli associated with them. And the mood associated with that memory is like one of the hashtags. So when you're depressed, for example, it's almost like your brain runs a search for like hashtag depressing memories and all that crap. I mean, not crap, like all the stuff pops in your brain basically. Other times you felt that way. What that means is when you've been in kind of a dark place for a long time, your happier memories the memories of better times are are not real readily available because your brain isn't really like using the search tags that correlate with those things so i hope this doesn't sound like a cop out cuz i don't i don't i'd love to teach you like here's a 5 minute exercise to like reco- recover your good memories but i don't actually know one what i will say is mood congruent memories work in both directions and so if you've been struggling for a long time you may not be naturally recalling a lot of those memories. But if you continue to work on yourself, work through therapy, work on experiencing more pleasant mood states, what I think you will find as sort of a beneficial side effect of that is you'll experience an increase in mood-congruent pleasant memories. Because it's just it's just really hard for your brain to be like, and remember that time when we were truly happy and content and everything was good. When that's the complete opposite of how you feel right now, it does. It seems fake. It, it seems like like a dream or a fantasy. It doesn't feel like a real thing that ever actually happened to you because your current mood state is so far detached from that that it doesn't seem like those different experiences and those moods could have possibly existed within the same person in the same time frame. Um, So I think really getting back positive memories is often a matter of just working on your mood and working on your mental health in general. That's definitely how it's played out for me. There were a lot of like good memories, not even not traumatic memories, but like happy memories that I just didn't, they just weren't there for a while. And as my mental health improved and as my quality of life improved, I would just notice them popping in a lot from time to time because I felt in the present, more like I felt when those memories are formed, and that emotional hashtag sort of pulled them back up into my the forefront of my mind, basically. So that's all the questions I had for today. I know those were kind of rapid fire, but um, that's kind of how we're gonna do these. These are just gonna be sort of like quick off the top of my head ideas for your questions. Um, Really quick, if you enjoy these content and you would be curious to um, become an ultra supporter and maybe get to ask me some questions that I'll cover on this channel, I would absolutely love that. Check out the membership tag. Um, but the videos themselves will be free to everyone, members, non-members, regular supporters, super support, doesn't member, uh, doesn't matter. I should say this, uh, the questions part is just a fun little perk that I wanted to give people join the membership because they wanted to give back to me, but then I wanted to give back to them for giving back. So I've now created an infinite feedback loop on my channel. Anyway, tangent unsuccessfully avoided. I'm going to head out now. Take care and I'll see you next time.